I'm going to get started, and uh, the scripture for today is John 20, verses 1 through 18. This is from the Gospel of John, and it takes place on Sunday, Easter Sunday. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away the Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put them, put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he'd said to her. So ends the reading. I'm going to come back to this pivotal resurrection story in just a moment, but I want to share a story from my own life with you about giving birth, actually. Uh, if you know me, you know I have three daughters. I've been in labor three times. And if you've ever been a woman in labor or you've ever been near a woman in labor, you know that it can be stressful. Uh, you know that the intensity of contractions can be distressing to the woman herself uh, and to the people in the room with her. Uh, any husbands here who can say, yes, yes, I agree with that. Um, in my second and third labors, I had a friend there for support, uh, along with Mark, and depending on where I was, doulas or midwives or nurses in the room. But one thing I noticed as my labor intensified, that as my contractions seemed harder and harder to bear, I noticed that when people around me in the room were not focused on me and not bearing witness to the pain that I was in, my labor felt more painful. It felt harder to get through on my own. So if someone shared a joke during a contraction or exchanged information or handed someone a water bottle and someone else said thank you, it meant the eyes that I needed on me in that moment were not on me. And it increased my sense of just being alone and overwhelmed and in pain. Now of all the people in the room, I felt like I needed 
mark most of all to be paying scrupulous attention to me. Unfortunately, women in painful labor have this bad reputation for sometimes seeming irrational, which is not true. Like we are very rational about what we need. We have good reasons for why we feel the way we do. Um, but I didn't want Mark to look at a clock or a person or his phone or accept a granola bar or say thank you to anyone during one of my contractions. So I did my best to like just politely signal this to him. Um, but because of the other people in the room, I was like holding back a very desperate plea for him to be 100% locked in to me in my distress. And I think that it's often how it works when we're distressed. We reach out to people. We want people to see us and be with us. And we want to be able to experience the comfort of another person. Some of you in this room or watching online, you've reached out to me in times of distress, or you've reached out to a friend or a relative, a counselor, a parent, a teacher. We reach out to people. That's the kind of people we are. We reach out to people, hoping that their presence can help relieve the intensity of our distress. And if we're fortunate, you know, those people can come to us and see us and know us in our distress. It often does relieve some of the, the pain that we're experiencing. And we may reach out to God and begin seeking God, you know, through increased prayer or Bible study or asking him to show himself to us in our distress. But I think it's different with God than it is with people because God doesn't need an invitation from us in order to be with us. He doesn't need us to make a frantic phone call before he's going to show up at our door. And what we see in the passage for today is the reality that God is already with us in our distress. It's what we see God doing with Mary uh, in the garden by the tomb. It's what God does for us today. He's already with us in our distress. And the problem is we don't always recognize God with us. We can be so consumed with grief or anxiety, trauma symptoms. You know, we can be flooded with emotion so much that we don't hear God, that we don't recognize that he's with us in distress. So I want us to just see how this plays out uh, in the story for today and what the Holy Spirit's invitation to us might be as we look at how Jesus was with Mary. Now, a little background to this passage. If I had to pick a main character other than Jesus, because this is his moment, right? But if I had to pick a, another person other than Jesus, I would go with Mary Magdalene as our central character here. Now, you might have heard of Mary Magdalene, the prostitute. Anybody heard of Mary Magdalene, the prostitute? Um, maybe in some books or some movies you've seen. Um, she has been portrayed like that for a very long time, even though there's no scriptural evidence that Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. Uh, it was a conjecture made by one famous person once a long time ago and in a sermon, and it just caught on. So I'd like to just disrupt that rumor today. We can kind of leave it behind and ask, what do we know about Mary from the Gospel account? Well, we know that she met Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. So she had been with him for about three years. And one of the Gospel accounts tells us that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Mary of Magdala, a small fishing village just off the coast of Galilee, she was not a woman in her right mind when she met Jesus. It's likely that her friends and her family had just thrown up their hands in helplessness, uh, not knowing how to help her, how to keep her safe, how to keep her calm or in peace. These seven demons likely made Mary to appear 
to have what we would consider severe mental illness, erratic behavior perhaps, impulse control problems, mental torment and anguish, Mary was a candidate for a long-term psych ward stay. And then Jesus came along, and we don't know what their interaction looked like because it's not recorded, but he erased that part of her identity. She was restored to sanity and to peace, and Jesus restored her dignity. And she must have been a relatively wealthy woman by her position in life because we're told that she actually traveled along with Jesus and the disciples with other women and supported them economically. Like, she was paying into Jesus' GoFundMe account, right? So his meals were covered and whatever else he needed as he was traveling. So I think it's fair to assume that Jesus was everything to Mary. He was father and brother and son and teacher and Lord. And perhaps all of her family had scattered and abandoned her in her distress. And she had certainly left them to follow Jesus. And Mary was at the cross when Jesus suffered and died. She was at the tomb when the stone was rolled into place. In the gospel account, she just kind of lurks at the edges of the pages where you can see like Mary is watching everything. She's not taking her eyes off Jesus, and she's in so much distress. She endures trauma on Good Friday. I mean, Jesus certainly endured the trauma of the cross, and Mary endured the trauma of witnessing the suffering of one she loved, um, brutal suffering for six hours and then his death on the cross. We talk a lot about trauma these days. A very simple definition of trauma is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Mary was traumatized after Good Friday. She probably felt the pain of the crucifixion in her body as she watched. But trauma and distress actually blind Mary to the good news of Jesus' resurrection. So she has no right to oversee what happens to Jesus' body after he's dead. So she observes that he's laid in the tomb, and then she goes home because she must, because the Sabbath is beginning. And she was expected to observe the Sabbath and take a day of rest, of stopping from activity, just as Jesus would have done, just as a good Jewish woman would have done. So she spends Saturday shell-shocked. Her world is without Jesus. It's been devastated. It goes without saying, you know, she's in agonizing grief. And then she goes back to the tomb Sunday morning, the same tomb that had a stone in front of it. While it's still dark, to the place where Jesus' body lies. Why would she do that? You know, I was thinking about that, and I think it's similar to what we do, where tragic deaths occur, or where like places of trauma occur. We go back to those places. It's what our Iowa City community, when the volleyball player and West High School senior Caroline Found was killed in a moped accident 10 years ago on Mormon Trek. The community set up a memorial for her where she um, where she died. We are people who go back to the scene of trauma, whether it's literal or it's figurative. We revisit it. So there is Mary. She sees the stone is rolled away. Now, most of us know the rest of this story, but Mary doesn't. And so she doesn't think Jesus is alive. She thinks uh, not only was Jesus crucified on the cross, but now his body has been stolen. Now people are going to make a mockery of his remains. Um, her trauma has been compounded in this moment. Uh, she is beside herself and frantic. She runs to find 
Peter and John. John, who is the author of this gospel, he likes to refer to himself cheekily, I think, as the disciple Jesus loved, um, which he thinks very highly of his relationship with Jesus. So he calls himself that in the third person. But she goes and finds Peter and John, and she cries to them. You know, they've taken the Lord. We don't know where he is. Peter and John come running. Um, Peter goes in first to the tomb, and he sees what's there. And interestingly, the linen wrap that Jesus was wrapped in is lying there exactly in the place it would be in should Jesus' body still be there. One thing important to know about this, if you read a little um, previous to this section in John, Jesus' body on the night of his death was actually wrapped in linen, and it, the linen was saturated with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. 75 pounds to like preserve the body and uh, and when the aloe dries in all that linen, we're talking about a very uh, difficult structure to crack, okay? Like the worst pinata you've ever had at a birthday party, okay? And so they see, they see this is laying exactly where it should be. Uh, the Greek is a little more nuanced, so we know that it's not damaged. It's lying as it should, like in the shape that it should be in. And not destroyed and if anyone had wanted to steal Jesus body they would have had to destroy that linen shroud and so John goes in he sees that and then he sees that the head coverings like folded up like did Jesus clean up the tomb like when he got up we don't know but he believes he knows that something miraculous has happened um, but maybe he's not quite sure what exactly God is up to but something God is doing is is happening and those two men they just leave then they go back to where they were they don't talk with mary mary meanwhile is still crying she hasn't looked in the tomb she hasn't gone in there she's still distressed so she finally decides to look in and the tombs are like cut into rock down low in the ground so that's why they're stooping in to see so she looks down into the tomb and instead of noticing the linen shroud she sees two men like two angels dressed in white and instead of questioning what she's seeing like who are they and what's happening? She's just sobbing. And these angels ask her, you know, woman, why are you crying? And I think they're hoping to help her come to her senses uh, that everything is not as dark as she thinks that it is. But she answers them by saying, you know, people have taken away the Lord's body. She doesn't know where it is. She continues weeping, um, wheels around to look in a different direction. And Jesus is standing right there in front of her. And he says, woman, why are you crying? And it's Jesus. But in her distress, she doesn't see him. She doesn't recognize him. She just pleads with him as if he's a gardener, saying, please, you know, tell me where his body is. I'll take care of it. I'll take it back. But then Jesus says her name. He says, Mary. And Mary recognizes this familiar voice in the moment. She recognizes the language of his love for her. And the text implies that she just like immediately grabs hold of Jesus and says, teacher, teacher. But it was the trauma, it was the distress that she had been in that had blinded her to the good news that the Lord was not dead, that Jesus was alive, and that God had not abandoned her. And you know, I think it's similar in our own lives when we have our own trauma, our own distress, that can blind us to God's presence and resurrection power that is here 
with us, for us. It's become really normal for us, I think, in this generation to talk about trauma. Um, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, it comes up at coffee, comes up, you know, at bowling, I don't know, it just comes up a lot now. It's a lot more socially acceptable to talk about traumatic childhood experiences that we've had, how we've been impacted by them, current distress in our lives, the books we're reading to help us cope, the podcasts we're listening to to help us sort things out, the pastors we're talking to, the therapists we're talking to. I think we're, we're a people now who have uh, our minds wrapped around a little bit about what trauma is and how it impacts us. And city churchers and those connected to us we are all people who have trauma in our past or in our current, uh, in our current lives. We're experiencing distress. Uh, on Friday, we had our Stations of the Cross event in this room. It was so powerful. The participants who came through were invited to express their lament and their prayers to God because of some painful things that they are going through. And on the tree at the back of the room, I've left the tree there. I was at the station for, for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, people were invited to write what was weighing them down with sorrow, just as Jesus' disciples had been weighed down with sorrow uh, on the night he was in the garden. And you'll see little scraps of paper back there that contain the things that people wrote that are weighing them down with sorrow. And some of it is trauma. Some of it is distress. And then at the canvas at the back of the room, at a different station, people were invited to pray a, a lament prayer, to write down a line of lament, which is a way of praying that scripture uh, endorses and, and shows as like a normal way to engage with God, to express lament. And you'll see prayers of lament that, that indicate that there are people in distress in our world. Some of you guys are here and you're distressed over the state of your marriage. Some of you are distressed over some childhood memories that you're newly realizing had an impact on you. Some of you are in distress because of church trauma or COVID trauma or trauma from illness or accidents, injuries, assaults. Some of you have a witness domestic violence and that has shaped some things in you and affected you. Uh, some of us have experienced the trauma of emotional abuse. There's also the trauma of reading headlines, news headlines right now. It was a hard week with another mass shooting and just more horrific violence in Ukraine. It's not my job this morning to detail or give you guys a lesson on trauma and grief, but what results from trauma and what results from our distress are the same things that Mary Magdalene was experiencing on Easter morning before she heard the Lord say her name. Things like shock, anxiety, grief, hopelessness, irritation, confusion, nightmares, insomnia, fatigue, those are all symptoms of trauma that can blind us to God's presence and resurrection power in our lives. And it's in these states of distress, I think we often feel the most alone. And often we may cry out to God, we may beg God to show himself or come to us and feel as if he's far, as Mary did, because we aren't able to recognize the reality of his presence with us because of how overwhelmed we are. We think God's far from our trouble and then we beckon him frantically to come here. 
But in Mary's case, you know, God the Son, Jesus, he's already with her in her grief and disorientation. He persists. He keeps speaking to her. He says her name. And, and finally, that cloud of disorientation and distress is broken over Mary. He says her name, and then she's able to recognize, oh, Jesus is alive. My God is alive, and grab hold of him. And everything changes for Mary in that moment of recognizing Christ with her. You know, we talk about the grace of God. It's a phrase we use all the time because it's in the Bible. Grace means God shows favor on us and we don't have to earn it. It means God is with us before we're even able to be with him, before we're even able to relax into his presence. And some of you in the room, some of you who will watch this online later, you need to know that the same Jesus who said Mary's name is the same Jesus who says your name today. You need to know God is already with you in your distress, that while you might feel frantic or hopeless or uncertain or anxious or struggling in some kind of way, that he's not far off, that he's not distracted by other people or his phone notifications, he's not on vacation or sabbatical, from being your savior and your friend, and you don't have to beg for his companionship because he is already with you. We call the presence of God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I think right now, is saying your name in the way that Jesus said Mary's name in the garden. Hey, Noel, I'm with you. I'm right here. Uh, hey, Mark, I'm right here. Hey, Mayo, I'm not far off. Just receive the the peace of knowing I am right here. Christians believe God is omnipresent, which means he's not limited by geography. So he's here with us in this room. He's with Life Church down the road and Resurrection Church down the road and Christians worshiping in, U in Ukraine and Rwanda today. If you're a disciple of Jesus and Jesus is your Lord, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, not just with you, but also in you. Now, I say all that, and you might be, have identified as I'm talking, yes, I have a healing journey. Yes, I'm dealing with some things in my life that are hard. And your journey out of healing or distress, it might be miraculous and sudden, as Mary's was. Um, your journey, though, might be years long, as you have new revelations of the goodness and kindness of God and, and how he feels about you and who he's made you to be. There may be some other things all of us carry with us until we meet Jesus in heaven, where we'll be fully restored and fully healed. But the hope that we have in Christ is not just for this life. Because there are things that don't get made right on this earth. We can be sure of that when we read the news about what's happening in Ukraine and know that there are those who suffered unjustly before they died and before they met Jesus on the other side of this life. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he said, if we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone because it's not just for this life. It is for the life to come, and there are hard things that we will bear. But regardless of what healing looks like or how long it takes or how restored you feel, 10 years from now, it doesn't change the fact that God is with you. 
Jesus promised his disciples never to leave them, never to forsake them. And it means when we are distressed about our families or work or our health condition or, you know, uncovering things from our childhoods that we didn't know were causing us pain, he is with you. He is with you. He is with you. And with the Holy Spirit comes peace and comes joy and comes love and comes the ability to suffer along without our hope being crushed and the ability to have patience while we wait for what we long for. Now, I think there might be a few things happening in this room today, and you might be sitting here thinking, like, I don't have any of that Holy Spirit stuff right now, <laughs> like that peace and joy. Uh, I don't have the love of God in me on, on this journey. I feel totally lost. And if that's you, one very important necessary step is surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life. And I guess my question to you, if that's you today, is have you ever come to a place in your life where you said, Jesus, I'll follow you come hell or high water. Like, I'll submit to you. I'm going to hang on to you. I'm going to obey you. My faith is in you and your way to save me from my own mistakes and sin and from the sin that's been done to me. Have you ever said this to God? And if you haven't and it's something you want to say to God, you'll have an opportunity to do that when we have a moment of silence in a few moments. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that through the cross, he recycled sin into mercy and forgiveness. And God forgave those who nailed him to the cross. And the blood of God that was shed on the cross is evidence of his forgiveness and grace to anyone who comes to him with a humble heart. Now, others of you are in this room and you've already received Christ as your Lord. You're following. Some of you have been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, and we, we want you to have the opportunity to do that, we'll go down to the rec center after church where we do baptisms, and that's where you can make a, a public confession of your faith. But guess what? Even when we know Christ as our Lord, we still go through times, as Mary did, of feeling lost from God when we're not. And I've shared this story before. I just want to share it again. Uh, in the old days, during Midwestern winters, when blizzards would kick up and farmers didn't have you know, electricity and outdoor lighting and tractors that would plow snow, they had to get from the house to the barn in order to feed the animals in a blizzard when they could not see anything. And so what they would do is they would tie a rope between the house and the barn, and they would go out hanging on to the rope and know that like they couldn't see but they were just hanging on and they were going to get to the barn eventually and some of you guys might feel sometimes or even maybe today like you are at the barn in the middle of a blizzard and you are trying to find your way home and the rope is christ and the rope is the reality that you can't see with your eyes right now in this minute but it's the reality that he's with you and that he's saying your name, and pretty soon you're going to recognize it and you're going to hear him. And we are going to take communion together today. Uh, on the night Jesus was betrayed, and he took the wine, he took the bread, he told the disciples, this is my body and this is my blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. But before we take the elements together, I want to just give you a moment of silence to examine your own heart. Is there something that you want to confess to God today? Is there something uh, that you want to say before you take communion? 
Remember, God's bloodshed on the cross means he's a God who demonstrates he's a God of forgiveness. And all we have to do is confess and repent, surrender to him, and he forgets it. So I want you to take a moment. There's something you want to say, or if there's uh, an issue in your life you want to invite Jesus into, or you want to say, Lord, help me hear you, say my name, you can take that time. I'm going to invite you to take the bread, Jesus' body broken for you. And then I invite you to take the cup, which represents a new covenant in Jesus' blood. Will you guys pray a prayer with me? You can just repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me in my distress. Forgive me for my sin and guide my life from this moment forward. Open my eyes to see you. Open my ears to hear you calling my name. And lead me into the heart of God. Amen.